Good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right, man. We do that next song a time through again, and you're already ready on the woos. Uh, that was good. I was sitting over here um, as Quentin came up on stage, and uh, I kind of walked over here to get the TV, and then I'm like, oh, Quentin's going to want to sing a little bit more, so I back back. And then he said, what he, he said, let's start back in the chorus, and this is honestly what went through my head. Everybody in the room is excited about that, except the guy that's got to start singing that chorus at that moment. I was like, <laughs> Trenton was like hunting down throat lozenges already for hitting those high notes, and Quentin's like, oh, you could do it another time too. So great job to the band this morning. What about that, Joe? Enjoy that this morning. The band did a great job. I want, to, uh, I want to ask you to do something for me, and then we're going to pray, and uh, we'll jump into the very last of sermon in the message series that we've been in. That, I mean, that's not it. It's pretty, though. That's not going to throw me off at all. Look at there. Hey, got it back. Um, but I want to ask you to do something for me. So next week is kind of a special Sunday around LifePoint. Um, 16 years ago when we planted this church, one of the things that we've always wanted to do is be a church that plants churches. And uh, I, believe, I believe that the greatest efforts made in pushing back lostness in the world that we live in is done by the efforts of church planting. Um, and we want to be a church that does that. And over the years, we've had a chance to do that. We've been a part of planting two churches in Oregon. Um, I was able to work with a church that was planted in, um, in Pearl, Mississippi that we had got to have a part in. Um, a lot of different times, I mean, two or three times a year, me and Quentin go and we assess church planters and we work with that. Um, but we get to do something really cool, and you're going to get to find out about it. But we're actually taking LifePoint across the pond to the U.K., and um, uh, one of our elders, Chris Hilburn, and his family will be packing up very soon. Uh, they've been raising support for uh, over a year now, I think, getting ready to go over there. But they will be, uh, Chris and Laura and their two kids, uh, will be packing up and heading over to UK. And um, I think they're going to England first and then eventually going to be planting the church in Scotland, I think is right. I keep getting those things messed up because geographically, I don't really know the difference in Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales. I just know that they say they speak English, but it sounds funny. Um, so that's like what I know. But um, they're going to be going over there to do that. And next Sunday, uh, Chris is going to be sharing from the stage. And it's not going to be a pitch for the Hilburns. He's just going to be talking about our role in taking the Gospels to the ends of the world. And, um, uh, you know, I heard this past week, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop at this. Um, you know, Scotland in many ways, is like the birth of Protestantism. I mean, heroes like John Knox. I mean, there's a statue of John Knox uh, in Scotland. And I mean, that's a place where, um, man, some of the, some of the greatest causes of, of missionary work to the world uh, had its derivative in Scotland. And today, it is less than 1% believers. Um, less than 1% are believers. In fact, the, the, the family in Scotland, the family unit as a whole, is under such attack that um, another friend of mine is actually planting a church in Scotland as well. I was talking to him this past week, and he said that the family unit is under such attack that the pastors in that area don't even recommend referring to church life as a family because family has such a negative connotation um, in Scotland. And so it's crazy that one of the places where the, is kind of the birthplace of Protestantism has now become... Uh, post-Christian, and less than 1% are believers, and you're going to get to be a part 
of hopefully seeing that dynamic change as we send Chris over there. So I want you to be here next week. Invite some friends, uh, invite some family members, whatever. Invite some folks you know, and uh, be here next week to hear Chris talk about what we can do as we literally take the gospel to the other side of the world um, through your generosity and through uh, what you do as a church. So we're kind of excited about that. I want you to be here next week for that. All right, let's pray together. We're going to jump in this last message. Father, we thank you for the day. Uh, thank you for your goodness and your kindness, your compassion. Uh, thank you that uh, when we couldn't get to you, you came to us. And uh, thank you, God, for the privilege just to come this morning and make a conscious decision to worship you, uh, to celebrate your name. And we pray that what we've done this morning brought a smile to your face. And we ask now that you would speak clearly through your word and that you would inspire us uh, to decision and bring us to a crisis of faith where we can choose to be obedient uh, and respond appropriately to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So 14, I think, weeks ago, we kicked off this series called The Grind. And in case you're here this morning, you haven't been here the last 14 weeks, I kind of want to bring you up to speed. Um, in, the, in ancient Israel, um, you look back in ancient Hebrew days, um, three times a year, the nation of Israel as an entire country, every person, every family, every people group, all these, all these folks would put their lives on hold and they would go on a journey. They would call it a pilgrimage. And what they would do is they would go on a journey where they packed up and they, they went to Jerusalem, which was, you know, they called that the city of God. It's the capital city of Israel at the time. It was the, it was the part of the country. It was, a part of the, it was where the temple was. It was where uh, the king's palace would have been. And they would go to the temple as an entire nation with one intent, and it was to find God. Right? Now, they, there were three different festivals they would go, and each festival had a different purpose one was the Passover. It was to celebrate uh, God's redemption and, and freeing them from, um, from Egypt. They would go for the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would be there to remember when they were wanderers in the wilderness and what their disobedience cost them. And, and then there was the Feast of the Harvest, the Harvest Festival, in other words, uh, where they would go and be thankful for God's provision in their life. There were different reasons they would go, but there was one purpose in them going. It was a pilgrimage to go and encounter God. Now, when we read about that, when we read about that in Scripture, and we, we think about the nation of Israel going on a pilgrimage, i got to be honest with you, I don't think we have the capability as Americans in the 21st century to understand what it was like to be Jewish in, you know, the B.C. times in, in ancient Israel. Uh, because when you and I think about going on a trip, we imagine going on trips in vehicles, right? I mean, we, I mean if, if I'm planning a trip to the beach then I'm going to hop in my car or my truck, and I'm going to go, and, you know, I'm like, gosh, it's going to be six hours, but it's going to be worth it when I get there because it's going to be the beach, right? And, uh, but we don't think about what it would have been like for these folks. It would have been like most of these folks would have probably had an average distance, I'm just going to guess, um, in their travels of like here to Huntsville, okay? And, and, and when you and I think of that, it's like, you know, I mean, We'll hop in the car on a Friday night on a whim to go to like Cheesecake Factory, right? Because we have a vehicle that will get us there. But for the people in ancient Israel, what that would mean was they would have to put their lives on hold. They would have to make plans well in advance of this particular pilgrimage to make sure that their crops or their animals or their business was taken care of while they were gone. And, and, and then they would have to get all their kids together. They would have to get enough food to last for the entire pilgrimage, which might have been weeks in nature. Most of the time it would have lasted weeks to get there and to get back. 
So they gotta, they got to gather up enough food. they got to gather a way to carry all that food. And then they leave, and they go, and they got all of the difficulties that it takes to go and to get to Jerusalem. And one of the things that, if you were here a few weeks ago when Todd Oldham did the, the tour guide Todd uh, Israel trip recap, uh, he had pictures of his time that he was in Israel. One of the things you'll realize is that topographically, the nation of Israel is astounding. I mean, it is a country of high mountains, deep valleys, rocky terrain, difficult to pass. I mean, if you're going to pick an easy place to go for a hike, it's not going to be Israel. Yet for three times every year, that's exactly what these people did. And I think this is the why, they, why they would do that. I mean, number one, it was commanded. It was what God wanted to do. God wanted to, them to never forget the things he had done in their lives. He wanted them to stay mindful of, of, of his relationship with them, the fact that he had made a covenant that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so three times a year, he would have them come back so that they wouldn't forget. But the reason the nation of Israel would continue to do that was this. There was an assumption that what they were going to was worth what they were going through. Let me say it again. There was an assumption that what they were going to, which was to encounter God, to experience God, was worth what they were going through. The trek, the difficulty, the mountains, the valleys, the rocks, the weather, the frustration, the kids getting lost. I mean, can you imagine that as every nation, I mean, as every, as every family from the whole nation starts to make this trip? There's no telling how many times along that trip you heard some parents say this. Say, you heard a wife say to her husband, where are your kids? Right, because that's what y'all say when it's our fault, right? You know, when, when they don't do what they're supposed to. Like, do you have any idea where you're kids? You're like, do you really think they lost their kids? Mary and Joseph lost Jesus on one of these trips. Can you imagine? How do you lose Jesus? I'm going to tell you, Mary is the only mama ever in the history of the world that was visited by an angel and said, you're going to have a special baby, and then lost him. Guaranteed. I mean, can you imagine how bad of a day that was? I bet you Mary and Joseph argue back and forth about who lost Jesus, right? And then they find him at church. That's even funnier. And then he says, well, didn't you know I was going to be about my father's business? In my house, that was... You, being, you saying you're going to be about your father's business means you got slapped by your mama's hand. You know what I mean? It's like, if there's ever been a moment that Jesus sounded like a smart ass, it was at that moment, right? But he's Jesus. No crying did he make. He was perfect in every way. Mary's like, oh, I know, honey. Joseph, go give James a whipping for Jesus. <laughs> sure, that's what happened. Had to be James's fault. If any of you are not the oldest child, you know what I'm talking about. But there's kids everywhere. They're, they're running around. You're on this pilgrimage. Life is tough. You're having to keep up with the kids, keep up with the animals, keep up where you're going. But here was the assumption. What I'm going to is worth what I'm going through. When we get there, we're going to have an encounter with God. When we get there, we're going to have, a, we're going to have the opportunity collectively as a whole to express and experience the promise that was, made to, that was made to our our dad so many years ago, Father Abraham, who so many years ago was told, my God, I will be your God and you will be my people. And together they're going to go and express that they're in relationship with God, that they, that they were privileged enough 
God loved them enough and in His loving kindness drew them into repentance. And all together as a nation to be able to say, God, you are so good, you are worthy, and we're going to have a meet, we're going to meet with you and encounter you. You know, in that day and time, God was no less omnipresent than He is now, but He reserved His special presence for encounters in the temple at that time time in history. And so there was this anticipation that when we get there, what we're going to is worth what we're going through. But the reality is, that didn't make the trip any less difficult. You see, in the same way, you and I, at some point in our lives, we get this opportunity, we get this invitation to have an experience, to have a relationship with the God of the universe. In fact, if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't remember ever getting that invitation. Well, here's your invitation. The God of the universe loved you so much, he sent his son to die on your behalf for one reason, to give you an opportunity to be adopted into his family. That there's no depth that you have gone to he wasn't willing to reach to. There's no sin so dark he wasn't willing to shed light into it. And there's no depravity so deep that he wasn't willing to go to the cross and pay the price for it because he wanted to adopt you and make you a son or daughter of the Most High God and a joint heir together with his son, Jesus. He invites you into relationship. You say, how do you know he invites me? Well, because his own son, who was the embodiment of God in the flesh, tells us that God loved the world so much. And as far as I can tell, everybody in here is part of the world. He loved them so much that he gave his only son that whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. And everybody in here is a whosoever. So therefore, if you're a whosoever, your invitation is extended by the Most High God to say, I desire for you to live in relationship with me. And that invitation is immediately followed. When we receive that invitation, it is immediately followed with an invitation to walk in the way of Jesus. Walking in the way of Jesus is not dependent upon your salvation. Your salvation is not dependent upon walking in the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't walk away from you if you walk away from Him. But it's an opportunity to experience God, to live in intimate relationship and fellowship with Him. And it's the idea that what we're trying to get to is going to be worth what we're going through. You see, for many of us in the room, I think we were sold a bill of goods that if we would pray a prayer and believe, a, a, a believe this certain thing, that everything in our life was going to be okay. And some of you prayed a prayer and you believed that everything wasn't okay. In fact, for some of you in the room, and I know a lot of the stories in the room, it's been anything but okay. You have experienced the valleys of life way more than you've experienced the mountains of life. You've experienced the tumultuous topography of navigating life, walking with Jesus, more than you've experienced standing on a mountaintop with your hands lifted in praise, talking about how good God is. But the idea that still holds true, not just for ancient Israelites, but for those of us who today have placed our faith in Jesus and have a desire to follow Him, to walk in the way of Jesus, is this, that what you're going through is going to be worth what you're going to. And for me, the question becomes this. I can understand that. I can even get on board with that. But is there anything I can do to make the going through any better?
You see, over the last 16 years, if I had, as I've had the privilege to stand on this stage and, and share God's Word with you, and be drawn in many ways to your lives, and to be able to play a small part in seeing the story that God's writing in your lives, over the years, what I've noticed is that sometimes life just stinks. And in those moments of being in a valley, in those moments when the, you're not on the mountain, it seems more like the mountain's in the way. In those moments, it seems like the question that gets asked is, I'm not asking, can anything be like all better, but can it be any better? And in fact, around here, one of our core values is, is that we make it better. That we make it better. That we believe that what God did in our lives was He sent His Son to make it better, and what we should be doing in the lives of others is making it better. And the question for me becomes is, how can we make it better? And as I look back over the last 15 weeks, and I consider these 15 songs of ascent that the nation of Israel would sing to encourage one another that what they were going to was worth what they were going through, what I see is a pattern of what it takes to make it better. In Psalm 120, when the songs of ascent begin, it begins with the psalmist saying, how long am I going to have to hang out where I'm at? I'm hanging out around lying tongues. I'm making my tents in, 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 the, in the areas around people that don't have any regard for God. And the psalmist says, if you're going to get where you need to go, you've got to leave where you're at. And for many of you in the room, you have left where you were at to go where you think God wants you to go. And you just find yourself along the way going, but is there anything I can do about the journey? I understand the start and I'm looking forward to the finish, but what can I do about the journey? And during the journey, as we've read Psalms 121 through Psalms 133, what we have found is that it is God's compassion that sustains us. It is God's goodness that sustains us. His provision along the way that sustains us. It is the recognition of His glory and the recognition of His honor. It's, it's, the, it's the reminder that He has been for us in the past and He'll be for us into the future. It's the reminder that God is for us. Like I, I love that ideal. I love that concept that no matter what I'm going through, I don't have to ask, is God thumping me on the head right now because I've done something wrong? No, God is for you. And whatever it is that we're going through, it is an attempt to get you where He wants us to be. And yet the missing song is okay, but is there any way to make this any better? When I find myself in a struggle, I find myself in the grind, is there anything that can make it any better. And I think the answer lies in how we ended, how the Israelites ended their songs of ascent. I want to show it to you just now. In case, for those of you, for those of you who may be in a valley or trying your best to climb over some rocks or the top the topography of your life feels un just feels so daunting and unrelenting. Or for those of you who life is incredibly great, and because it's so great, you're like, I know a valley is coming. Whichever one of the situations you're in, I want to show you, when you find yourself there, wherever situation, mountain, valley, rocks, whatever it is you find yourself in, I want to show you what I think makes it better. 
The final song of the sentence says, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. You know, the final song of ascent is a song of blessing. It's a song of blessing. And, you know, one of the things that I struggle with, and maybe you do, I'm going to just ask a simple question. How many of you have ever read the Bible and you struggle to understand it? Anybody remember done that? Right? So like everybody who doesn't raise their hand to that, here's what that means. You're either a liar or you don't read your Bible. Right? Because... The Bible's hard to understand sometimes, right? And I acknowledge that. But I think I figured out one of the reasons why the Bible's hard to understand. It's because it wasn't written to 21st century Americans in 21st century American language. We've just translated it into English throughout the years. It was written to, a, to largely Hebrew people in an ancient culture. And so we have a hard time understanding their thoughts, understanding their setting, and understanding their dynamics. For instance, I'll give you an example. You read through the Old Testament, and you find out that the nation of Israel was in bondage, in exile to Egypt. And you start reading the story. They even made a movie about it, right? You start reading the story about all that Moses did, gets them out of slavery, they cross the Red Sea, all that kind of fun stuff, right? And you read... That they were in Egypt for 400 years. And you just turn the page. Because that's on one page. It's just written for 400 years. We've, you, you can't even put yourself in a situation where you begin to think. The nation of Israel was in exile in Egypt for almost twice as long as America has been a country. But it's just a page. Like we don't think about. Think about that. Think about how far removed you are from George Washington and double that to think about how many generations spent their entire lives in exile hearing this promise that you are God's people and He is your God and wondering this, then where is this God that I'm supposed to be His people? Why are God's people in exile for 400 years if that's even true? Does God really even care about us? Does He not see what we're doing? I mean, we're over here building pyramids as slave labor, and God doesn't even seem to care. Sounds a lot like what we experience in some of our lives, where it's like, does God really know the financial situation I'm in, and there's more month than there is money, and I, does God even care? Or does God not even know that my wife got sick or my husband lost his job? I mean, what's the deal? Because we just flip a page in Scripture and we go from Egypt's in captivity or Israel's in captivity to Israel till all of a sudden they're crossing the Red Sea. Woohoo! I mean, we get all that in an hour and a half movie. We forget it was 400 years. When Nebuchadnezzar and his armies come in, they take the nation of Israel into exile, into Babylon. And they're there for 70 years. I mean, they were, they were there from now all the way back to 1952 when gas was a nickel. Because we just flip a page, we don't understand. We, don't, we can't put into our... We can't, we, can't, um, we can't rationalize and really think through 
If there's anything that, if there's any people that understood what it felt like to wonder if they even mattered to God, it was the nation of Israel. And so all along, God gives them these little tidbits of who he is and what he's like. And now right as they're about to ascend to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage where they're going to remember their days in captivity. They're going to remember how God rescued them out of Egypt. They're going to remember how God provided for them during the harvest. They're going to remember how God passed over their homes and brought redemption to their people. The last song in their mind is this, come and bless the Lord. And our American way of thinking about blessing is, means typically that we do something for someone lesser than us. Blessing is typically the idea of the greater doing something good for the lesser. And so when we think about blessing something, our American way of thinking about it is, is typically in a matter of gift giving. But when the, when, when the psalmist is talking about it, isn't it funny that it's not the greater doing something for the lesser, it's the lesser doing something for the greatest. It's an invitation and a command to come and bless God. How in the world do you bless God? If you want to know, how do you make things better when you find yourself in a valley? How do you make things better when you get news you didn't want to get? How do you make things better when you lose a job? How do you make things better when there's more month than money? How do you make things better when there's a health issue or a relational issue? When, when the friends you thought you had turn out to not be friends. When the life you thought you were going to live falls apart. When every goal and aspiration seems to come to an end. How do you make it better on a Thursday when it just seems like a rotten day? How do you make it better? Here's the invitation to make it better. Come and bless the Lord. All you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. What does it mean to bless the Lord? You know, the, the words that are used interchangeably throughout the Old and New Testament for bless the Lord be praise the Lord. I just think that there's something more there's something deeper, at least in the connotation of what it means to bless something, what it means to praise something. It's an invitation to this. It's an invitation to come and do something beneficial for. It's, it's to come and bring something more than what you think you can bring. It's an invitation that when you're in the, when you're, whether you're on the mountain or you're deepest in the valley, that you say to God, my worship of you and my celebration of who you are and my exalting the name is independent of my circumstances. I'm not, bringing, I'm not coming to you to bless you because you blessed me. I'm coming to bless you because you deserve it regardless of you've done anything for me. It's an, it's an exaltation of the person of God, not thanksgiving for the provision of God. You understand that? Can I get a little head nod? Does that make sense? It's being able to look around at what's going on around you and saying, the circumstances of my life have no bearing on the nature of the God that I serve. You see, our tendency is to define God's goodness by our circumstances. The two are mutually exclusive. God is not bound by, nor is his goodness defined by what you're experiencing. Way too often in our life, we evaluate God through the lens of our circumstances. 
when we need to be evaluating our circumstances through the lens of God's character. And God looks at these guys. I believe that a lot of times this song was sung right before they began the final ascent up into Jerusalem where everybody's tired and there's still one more climb to make. And they would look at them and say, let's sing it together. Come and bless the Lord. Come and give Him praise. Come and celebrate His name. Come and talk about His goodness. Let's remind each other that we, He is our God and we are His people. Forget about the blisters on your feet. Forget about how hungry you may be because you didn't plan well. Forget about where the kids are for a minute. They can be on their own pilgrimage. Right now, let's remember, what we're going to is worth what we're going through. We're going to celebrate the name of God. The same thing is true in our lives. You want to make your situation better? Bless the Lord. You say, I think what would make my situation better is if the Lord would bless me. Maybe so. But see, you have no control over that. What you need to control are the things you can control. You know what you can control? You can make a choice to worship. That's why I like that song so much. See, I think worship is a choice, largely. I don't think, it's, I don't think blessing the Lord is, is, is purely an emotional or a mystical thing. Blessing the Lord is not charismatic or Pentecostal or whatever other label we want to put on it. Blessing the Lord is a God thing. It's a Jesus thing. It is a conscious decision to say, God's bigger than the valley I'm in, and I'm going to express praise for who He is, not just what He does. And I love this, and I love this. Then the transition in verse 2 says, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And there are people right now that are so uncomfortable, even as we get to that. Like the introverts in the room and those of you who grew up in a really Baptist church are like, well, I don't know about that lifting the hands thing. I'm with you, all right? I grew up in a really Baptist church too. I remember the first time we came back from a uh, Dawson McAllister concert. That'll really date me. Some of you probably remember him. We came back from one of those. Our whole youth group started clapping one Sunday morning. The deacons about had a stroke. Like, what is that noise? Right? It was real hard to clap in my church, too, because the lady that played the organ, she wasn't very good. She couldn't stay in time. And every now and then, she was going to throw out a brah. It just ruined the, clamp, the, the, the clapping. All right? Just not, man, they, they about, I mean, I'm telling you, I'll never forget that. I mean, I, I think it was a deacons meeting after church. What are we going to do with these people clapping? Right? Some of you are like, yeah. And clapping ain't even close to raising hands. You say, why does that matter? Why is it that all throughout the book of Psalms, the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, we see where there's a commandment to raise hands? You know why I think it is? Don't, don't miss this. I think there's some implications to it. Because sometimes your heart is not in the place to bless the Lord. And when your heart's not in the right place to bless the Lord... You can at least tell your hands to do it, and sometimes your heart will follow what your hands are doing. Sometimes you got to do something because it's the right thing to do, even when you don't feel like it. And when you'll, when, when you'll do the discipline of what you should do, it's amazing how often your heart will follow right along with it. I think that's why he said, lift up your hands. You know, I, I don't know where that came from. I, I, I think one of the reasons why we lift hands 
is because it's the universal sign of surrender. Sometimes in the valley or on the mountain, you just need to go, God, I surrender. Not my way, but yours. Not my thoughts, but yours. Not what I want, what you want. Don't like where I'm at? That's okay. Will you be here with me? And it's just surrender. So I've got nothing to bring. I'm holding nothing back. I'm just going to lift hands and worship. I'm going to bless your name by doing something so incredibly uncomfortable because you're even more important than my comfort. You want to make it better in the valley? Sometimes you just got to make a decision and a choice to do what's uncomfortable and put a hand up and say, Lord, I'm just going to bless your name. And then the final verse is so, it's so cool. It's, Come bless the Lord, lift your hands and bless the Lord. And then we sing together, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. And I, I want to tell you, I don't think this is what this means. I think if you read this without looking in depthly into it, I think you'll have the idea that what this means is, is if we'll raise our hands the right way, focus our heart the right way, then God will get us out of the valley and he'll, he'll set our feet on the rock, put us on the mountain. God will bring financial relief and relational relief and health relief and we'll all be good and dandy. I don't think that's what it means. You know what I think it means? When you bless the Lord, you'll be more aware of how He's blessed you. That oftentimes, oftentimes in the valley, when we make blessing the Lord the priority, what changes is not the circumstances, what changes is the perspective. Suddenly you begin to look around and you recognize the beauty of the valley. Sometimes you begin to look around and you go, you know what? I'm able to learn stuff in the valley that I can never learn on the mountain. God's able to do something in me in the valley that he couldn't do with me on the mountain. The greatest of forgings happens in the fire, not sitting on the shelf for everybody to look at how pretty the blade is. Our usefulness is often forged in the fire of difficulty. In the same way, what God wants to often do in our lives is he, 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 just, he just comes in and just tunes us. Like as we begin to bless Him, He just tunes our eyes away from what's around us to what's before us. And we begin to see, I don't necessarily like the valley. And the difficulty isn't all that much fun. And it still feels like a grind. But the grind is better when I realize I don't grind alone. When I look around and realize that He's never left me and He never forsakes me. And suddenly I realize when I bless the Lord, it makes it better. When I tune my heart to His, things are just better. When I make myself lift my hands in surrender and worship, even though everything in me says I need to hold everything tight and be reserved and protect myself. Instead, I, I make myself vulnerable and I lift my hands. And say, so, Lord, I just want to bless your name. It's amazing. All of a sudden, I find myself that I am blessed. I'm blessed from Zion by the one that made heaven and earth. You want to make it better? Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're in a tough place right now. Maybe life is difficult. Maybe it's not. Maybe you're great and you just want to stick this one in your back pocket for in case you stumble down a valley here shortly. You want to make it better? Here's, here's the best way I know to make it better. Praise God on the mountain 
and when the mountain's in the way. You praise Him when you're on the mountain. And you're like, God, it is so good to be up here where you're at. It was so good. Getting, getting to where I am was worth what I had to go through. I'm going to bless your name. You, then you bless Him when you're in the valley and you can't even see through the mountain. And the mountain seems like a struggle. And the mountain represents an obstacle. And the mountain represents difficulty in that moment. You say, you know what? I'm going to choose to worship. I bless you. I'm going to lift my hands. It's all I can do to lift my hands, God. You say, is it really honest, Matt, if you're raising your hands and your heart doesn't feel like it? Sure it is. If you lift them like this, God, I want to be honest with you, this is the last thing I want to do. But I'm doing it because I think you deserve it. That's honest. That's transparent. It's honoring. And I believe it blesses the Lord. So this morning as we end our time together, Quentin's going to come out. I want, to, I want to offer you an invitation that whether you're on the mountain or the mountain's in your way, would you make a conscious choice to bless God? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together. And thank you for who you are and what you do for us and how you engage with us. And God, this morning I pray that you would make us a people who stay mindful that what we're going through is worth what we're going to. You are with us. You've never left us or forsaken us. And that you deserve our worship. Well, we want to bless you this morning. May, may this morning, may the way we worship corporately as a group today, may it be a blessing. You may bring a smile to your face. In Jesus' name, amen.